Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. Not enough attention is being paid to what are the resources available to folks while they're incarcerated. If you want to stay connected with your loved one, you're having to pay exorbitant fees. This is really limiting the reentry prospects for the incarcerated. There's been research that shows that more contact with family, more video calls has a very, very significant impact on recidivism reduction. There are systemic issues that has caused this mass incarceration problem. 95% of folks in prison are going to come back to our society. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, do we want them to be folks that have opportunities and are able to contribute to our society? With Jack Dorsey, we took a long shot. We wrote up a proposal and they got in touch with us. These tech luminaries, they understand the power of software. I just had to believe that it was possible. That's Zohar Chingwa, founder of Emilio, a software-based effort to improve criminal justice outcomes through new in-prison technology. In just over two years since its launch, Emilio is already in use across five state correctional systems, from Iowa to Colorado to Maine. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Zoe because incarceration is an undeniable anchor on our economy and our society. Zoe is seeking to change that dynamic from the inside, through prisons themselves, which he argues haven't leveraged possibilities that new technology offers. Zoe's pragmatic approach, emphasizing the financial burden on families and the positive potential of digital education for those incarcerated, has attracted backers from Jack Dorsey to our own Reed Hoffman. His story includes intriguing lessons about novel business models, the power of finding common interests, and believing in unlikely ideas. Hi, listeners. It's Erica Flynn, VP of Alliances and Audience Development at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. My day-to-day consists of nonstop communication, not only with my immediate team, but with our current partner relationships and with incoming leads from possible future partners, which is why I rely on the ease of Grammarly to keep my communication clear and efficient. One confusing email can turn into several confused replies, which can turn into an unexpected meeting which no one wants, needs, or has time for. Having Grammarly on hand as my trusted AI writing partner not only streamlines my extensive to-do list, it minimizes miscommunication by quickly and efficiently synthesizing information and carefully curating tailor-made responses to specific groups. In fact, companies that use Grammarly to communicate can save 19 days per year per employee. Grammarly eases the writing process. It's a writing partner from the blank page to the last word typed before hitting send. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with Zoe Orchingwa, founder of Emilio, a tech platform 
providing communication solutions to America's correctional system with the goal of transforming criminal justice outcomes. So thanks for joining us. So excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So you have a master's in philosophy from Cambridge, a law degree from Yale, and an MBA from Yale. It's the kind of academic pedigree that could take you anywhere. But rather than go a traditional route, you chose to launch a startup. So why did you start, Emilio? My parents are Nigerian immigrants, so I've gotten a lot of pressure from them and similar questions as to why not pursue a legal career or a business career. But for me, growing up in Nigeria, in a very, very poor part of the country, I've always been passionate about the issues of poverty and inequality. I mean, upon coming to the States, unfortunately, I had a lot of friends who ended up incarcerated. So that set me off on this journey to try to better understand the U.S. criminal justice system and why it is that we incarcerate so many people and to try to devise solutions to solving it. So actually, after my undergrad, I went to University of Cambridge to pursue a master's degree in criminology and where I was doing research on the causes of mass incarceration, the histories of it. And at the end, I realized that almost no focus is being paid to the actual carceral experience. So once someone's incarcerated, what are the resources that are available to them? What are the technologies that they can use? And the more I learned, the more it became obvious that predatory companies that were really exploiting the vulnerable families and the incarcerated and really limiting their ability to successfully reintegrating to society. So my vision was, you know, why don't we try to build a much more ethical platform that divorces profits from its motivation and is really focused on bringing the best technology to the incarcerated to help them stay connected with those vital resources that they need. So a tech platform for prisons, it's not an intuitive opportunity, though. I mean, departments of correction are in the hotbeds of innovation and risk taking. Yes. Did that give you pause at the beginning, or was that a draw? It was a draw. It was a draw. I think one of the limitations I see in the innovation in tech today is that a lot of folks are trying to solve problems of leisure. How do we build solutions to make life a little bit more comfortable? For me, what drove me to found a tech company was that there are intractable social problems that we've been dealing with for decades. And I thought it was very, very important for us to not forget the most vulnerable in our community. So recognizing the DOCs had very limited technology, I saw that as a tremendous opportunity to fundamentally transform the correctional space. Explain for our listeners what Emilio does, because it's a communications platform primarily. We're a communications and education platform, and we started with communications. I think when we think about criminal justice reform, most of what we focus on is the policy. How do we lessen the sentences for the incarcerated? How do we address the outsized power the prosecutors have? But not enough attention is being paid to what are the technologies and what are the resources available to folks while they're incarcerated? So right now, there are two companies that dominate all the prison communications, meaning that if you want to stay connected with your loved one, or if you're an attorney and you want to stay connected with your client, you're having to pay exorbitant fees. So it's up to $15 for a 15-minute phone call. Video calls are up to a dollar a minute. And e-messagings are up to a dollar for a single e-message. And so this is not only driving one in three families with incarcerated loved ones into debt, but is really limiting the reentry prospects for the incarcerated because the folks you rely on post-release are your families. They're going to be your close networks. But if those bonds are severed, you almost have no chance of successfully reintegrating in society. 
society and rebuilding your lives. So what Emilio does is we built a free communication platform and also we'll be launching an education platform as well. And so in the core of it is it's completely free for our end users. So the incarcerated never have to pay for the service. The loved ones never have to pay for the service. We have different revenue streams, be it charging attorneys, kind of a de minimis fee to use a platform like a Zoom or Google Meets, and then also charging Department of Corrections for access to the service and also access to our educational platform. So the Department of Corrections is subsidizing this in a way that it doesn't for the existing systems that are there. It's extremely challenging industry to kind of break into because in the vast majority of the states, the DOCs are actually getting a kickback on the contracts with the vendors. So we often get asked, you know, how are you going to possibly convince Department of Corrections to not only take a chance on a startup, but also to forego the large amounts of money that they're making? So it's really a regressive tax on the most low income folks in our communities. But what we've been able to do is to be able to show DOCs the long term benefits of working with Emilio, the long term labor savings for their staff and an overall recidivism reduction and cost savings for the entire state. So the very first state that we actually partnered with was the Iowa Department of Corrections, and they're a kickback state. They actually earn revenue from the phone contracts and the e-messaging contracts that they have, but they have a very visionary executive director. And we went to her, Beth Skinner, and we presented her idea, and we talked to her about you know the long-term benefits. We see that more contact with family reduces recidivism. It makes prisons safer because it brings hope into these facilities. And it also saves their correctional staff a ton of time. We also provide scheduling. So right before we actually entered that prison system, in order for you to visit someone in Iowa prisons, you had to download a PDF. You had to fill out the information, send it to a central location. You had to call in to the DOC staff and request a visit. Thousands and thousands of calls every day became very, very unmanageable. And so what we were able to do is build an app for families that they can use to not only send e-messages and make video calls, but also schedule in-person visits, which saves the DOC an abundance of time. As you describe it, it sounds simple and almost obvious. Like, why shouldn't it be this way if this is what I can do in my workplace? But departments of corrections just haven't modernized in that way at all. It's not only their fault, though. We often get asked, you know, why doesn't Zoom or Google Meets or these other very, very large communication platform provide this technology? It's that their services are built for the free world, right? But for the correctional space, they need an abundance of security specifications in order to be able to enable technology to come in. So the way our system works is that there's actually three clients. There's a Department of Corrections that needs a managing dashboard. They need the ability to monitor calls, to access call recordings and a verify user. And then you have the incarcerated who need to be able to access the system and then family members on the outside as well. The challenge is that there's not a lot of great technology available to DOCs. And so they've been stuck with these incumbent companies. And they were actually very excited that the new player was entering the space. And so the communications that happen on the platform with families, the DOCs are monitoring that. Whereas the other part of your business, you mentioned communication with attorneys, I imagine that can't be monitored. Exactly. That's a tricky two tracks to keep open, right? 
It also presented us a great opportunity to enter the space because our competitors don't have attorney-client privilege communications. They just kind of force everyone to use their standard system. So there's been abundance of lawsuits. Uh, attorney calls have been recorded and leaked. So you have a lot of attorneys that really are fearful of using these technologies, which makes it extremely hard for them to do their work. That was what was really exciting to attorneys in that we were able to build a system for them that was not recorded, that we didn't have access to, and that was completely completely safe and secure. Where we see challenges, I think those are great places for opportunity as well, right? And so this is one of the reasons we're able to kind of break into certain systems. And is this software, is it all baked into hardware also? I mean, I, I still have probably an old-fashioned vision of, you know, lines of people waiting for pay phones. One of our competitive advantages is that we're the only player in this space that's hardware agnostic. So we don't mandate that DOCs have to use any particular hardware. That flexibility enables us to be able to scale relatively quickly. So in Iowa, we're actually leveraging Google Chromebooks. So Iowa had Chromebooks uh, across their facilities and that they weren't using. And so what we were able to do is leverage that, lock it down with an MDM system and enable our, our web app. So the incarcerated are able to just log in, they enter their PIN code and family on the outside who a mobile app. They're able to schedule these calls as well. But we do also offer DOC's ability to purchase hardware from us. So we've customized our own proprietary casing that we put off the shelf Samsung tablets or Apple iPads that DOC's can directly purchase from us. So some DOC's do like bundled services. It's kind of the way the incumbents have been able to really dominate the space because they can say, hey, you buy our tablets and it has everything in them. But our flexibility is a competitive advantage because we can do both. We can work off of existing systems, but we can also deliver tablets to the facilities. You mentioned you're working with Iowa. You're working with the Colorado Department of Corrections, with the Maine Department of Corrections. It's a disparate group, not necessarily the states with the largest incarcerated populations. Is that by design? Is that by opportunity? Yeah, it's both, both. We're lean startup. And so we knew we needed to start small. We needed to start with systems that we can manage, but we've gotten to the stage now where we can serve the entire correctional population. For us, it's really just about opportunity. So Colorado being the second DOC that we partner with has over 20,000 incarcerated folks. Iowa has over 9,000 in Maine. It's much smaller at 2,000. But we We've recently signed a contract with Mississippi DOC. So we're getting bigger and we're scaling. But yes, it's a disparate group, right? Iowa's a red state. Maine is kind of purplish and is much smaller. On Colorado, very similar. And then Mississippi, obviously, you know, was kind of shocking to us. They were very, very eager, actually, to work with us. I think a lot of the assumptions we had going in, a lot of folks from the outside are very, rightfully so, are very skeptical of Department of Corrections, right? We all watch the documentaries. We all see the articles and the prisons look like very, very terrible places. But I think what we also forget is that a lot of people in this space went into it as public servants, right, are not very well paid and it's a challenging job. And so what we've been able to do at Emil is really find those champions within the system that have really want to revolutionize the space and are able to work and partner with them. It's um, reflecting on the story you're telling about why you got into this in the first place. Your goal is not necessarily to increase the scale of incarceration, right? Exactly. And yet you have to be 
very respectful of those whose job it is to manage that system because those are your partners. You probably hear this from a lot of nonprofits that say, you know, they don't want to exist. They want to, you know, work themselves out of existence in a very near future. But for us, that's really at the core of our work. If we are successful, we are going to shrink the size of the prison system and ultimately will put ourselves out of business. And in order to be transparent, we've actually partnered with the University of Chicago to be able to evaluate our impact. So all of our work will be, you know, available in published articles. And so basically our work in University of Chicago team is to study four key questions. What's Emilio's impact on cost savings and the finances of families? So there's over 27 million Americans with incarcerated family members right now. It's close to 10% of the entire population. So we're looking at what are we doing to fundamentally reduce that financial burden that they're facing to help folks get out of the debt that they're in? The second question is, what is our impact on prison infractions? So there's been research that shows that more contact with family, more support reduces the violence and it's very intuitive. And then recidivism, obviously, being the North Star, you know, are we able to prevent people from getting back to prison? And so there's some work that the Minnesota DOC has already done that shows that video calls has a very, very significant impact on recidivism reduction. And then mental wellness. There is a crisis of mental illness in prison. Over 40 percent of folks who are incarcerated are suffering from some sort of mental illness that is also exacerbated by just how challenging the prison system is. So being able to leverage our platform to enable folks to get access to mental health clinicians and other services is really part of the core of our work. These studies, it's early for quantitative results at this point. Yes. Is there any anecdotal information you have, you get about what the impact of Emilio has been so far? So the very first product we actually launched was a mobile app that allowed users to send letters, postcard games that we then convert into physical form and mail into the facilities. So that product has close to 500,000 users now. The reviews are tear-jerking. You know, a lot of families can't even afford a 50-cent stamps. You'll see, you know, in the reviews, folks talking about spending all their money on health services and not having enough to be able to send letters. Just seeing that alone was added momentum and added fuel for us to expand beyond just that letter service to get into real-time video communication. We have folks who've used our system that are actually released now and are serving as, you know, a million ambassadors. The stories we get are incredible, but this is really only the beginning, right? We see this technology as breaking that digital divide that exists between prisons and the outside world. Hey, listeners, it's Jodine Dorsey, the VP of Live Events at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. I am constantly tasked with reaching out to teams across a wide spectrum of professions and the vastly different personalities that go with them. Grammarly helps me quickly shift tones to better communicate what I want to say and saves me valuable time in the process. Our upcoming Masters of Scale Summit event features top-tier speakers from CEOs to founders to political leaders. Grammarly's ability to produce on-brand writing helps me properly prepare for each and every thought leader I interact with on stage. It lets me generate the most exciting specialized content for our audience. In fact, teams that use Grammarly report 66% less time spent editing marketing content, which I've seen firsthand with my summit team. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Before the break, we heard Zoe Orchingwa at Emilio talk about how he's trying to improve criminal justice outcomes through new technology. 
Now he talks about how he successfully raised funding from the likes of Jack Dorsey and our own Reed Hoffman. He also talks about how Emilio generates revenue in surprising ways and why that differentiates his effort from many other nonprofits. Plus, he shares insights about why the blame game can distract us from effective problem solving and how pragmatic approaches can scale societal improvement. You've got some extraordinary financial supporters at Emilio, Jack Dorsey, Eric Schmidt, our own Reed Hoffman, among others. How did you get connected to these, well, billionaires? My co-founder Gabe likes to say that I'm very delusional and that I'm able to leverage that delusion. For me, you know, being a first-time founder, not really having much social capital, as I mentioned, both my parents are Nigerian immigrants. We moved back to the States when I was nine years old, living in a one-bedroom apartment in Hartford. And I've always had the vision that my parents instilled in me that if I worked hard enough, if I was humble and was committed to my goals, that it'd be possible to make really big things happen. So really how I got in touch with most of those people was cold emailing. I actually cold emailed Reed Hoffman. And as I was told, he never responds to cold emails. So probably not a good thing for anyone else to do. But luckily, he had been passionate. He's obviously a great philanthropist, been supporting voting organizations and education groups, but was really new to the criminal justice space, but did his due diligence and learn more about the space and about the work that we were doing. And I was able to connect with him and his team and really kind of pitched him on the work that we're doing. With Jack Dorsey, it was very similar. I got connected through a friend to DeRay McKesson. And he flagged for me that Jack, you know, had just started the Start Small initiative. And so we took a long shot. We wrote up a proposal and sent it to them. And it took a while, but they finally got in touch with us and we were able to pitch to them. It's really been a whirlwind. These tech luminaries, they understand the power of software. They understand that once that initial investment is made, the scaling opportunity is incredible. And we're so appreciative of them. And we've been able to serve, you know, now close to a million people What's it like to pitch these luminaries? Like, are you doing it by Zoom? Are you doing it in person? How do you prepare? Yeah, it's frightening. I'm not going to lie. We launched at the height of COVID. So our very first product was actually launched in March of 2020. So pretty much all the fundraising we've done has been virtual. And I actually recently met Reed Hoffman in person and very, very nervous. I was reading every article I could on Reed. I was trying to figure out how do I impress this guy that's built one of the biggest technology companies and now is a VC that's funding incredible companies. And so, you know, I think a lot of it is just embracing your delusions, right? So to think that the Jack Dorsey or the Eric Schmitz the world, have the time to even listen to kind of this small upstart company, I just had to believe that it was possible. So Emilio is a nonprofit, but it has a business model, a revenue plan that isn't geared to ultimately being reliant on fundraising and donations. Yes. And we think it's a model that other nonprofits should follow. So for us, it was important to divorce profit from our motives because we realized at the end of the day, the most profitable group to charge in this space is families and the incarcerated. So we didn't actually want to raise venture funding for this because ultimately we felt that it wasn't kind of an ethical business model that would allow us to really generate the profits that VCs would want. But we knew that we didn't want to rely on philanthropy. It's very hard to fundraise, especially as a tech nonprofit. I think kind of your typical 
foundations aren't used to software solutions, right? The huge support that we've received from folks like Jack and Reed has allowed us to build the technology and to build out the team that we need to make this thing happen. But long term, as I mentioned, charging attorneys or DOCs directly or educational organizations would allow us long term to be able to generate enough revenue to be sustainable. But our goal at the end of the day is not to be extremely profitable. We want to charge just enough to keep the lights on, but to accelerate growth as fast as possible. So we don't want to go to a DOC and say, hey, in order to use our service, you have to pay us tons of money because that's going to slow down the adoption of the technology. So we want to charge as little as needed in order to enable us to scale. But yes, from day one, actually, we've been generating revenue. So our written communication app, it's free for families. We allow folks to send three free letters, postcard, games, and other content every week for free. But folks who do have the means can purchase additional content in our premium store. And we leverage that money to subsidize it for the rest of the users. The very first state that we launched in Iowa, we were break even from day one. We were leveraging their existing hardware, their cloud storage. So all we had to do was deliver our communication solution. So being flexible like that, being creative is really what we're going to rely on to get to the point where we don't have to beg Reed and Jack and the rest for donations. You shouldn't have to be scrounging for the next grant, which is what a lot of nonprofits, whatever their social impact goals are, are spending a lot of their time and energy on. Definitely more than 50% of my time right now is spent fundraising. It limits our ability to be as impactful as we can. You've mentioned education a couple of times. Can you explain what the education thread of this is? Prisons are predominantly in remote areas, which means it's very, very hard for educators and colleges to be able to reach them. So we all know about really successful programs like the Bard Prison Initiative, the Hudson Link or Wesleyan's program. But those are very, very small programs that are geographically limited. And with the reinstatement of Second Chance Pell, you now have 500,000 incarcerated folks who now have access to federal funding to be able to support their education. But there's not enough supply of education opportunities. And so our vision was, how do we leverage technology to be able to scale virtual education or reach as many incarcerated people as possible? There is a asynchronous component. So being able to leverage existing educational content through partnerships with, you know, say companies like Masterclass or LinkedIn Learning, allow folks to be able to watch TED Talks or Khan Academy. We call that Emilio Gutenberg, just a free resource library that allows folks to guide their own education. The second component is the actual real time post-secondary education to engage with the incarcerated directly in their cells or in their classrooms. The challenge there is that you can't use Zoom because DOCs don't want students to be able to interact with each other. There are a lot of security restrictions and fears. So we have to build a system that enables the professor to be able to engage with all the students at once, but the students can only engage directly with the professors or, or the TAs. We've been able to sign a bunch of colleges. MIT has a prison education program that's going to be leveraging our system. All the colleges in Iowa are planning to leverage our system by enabling the incarcerated to have access to these opportunities. They can actually shorten the length of their sentences. These don't necessarily need to be degree-oriented programs. They're credentials and certifications of all different kinds that are 
part of this mix. Exactly. For a lot of our users, they want to get certifications that are going to help them be able to get jobs post-release. They're thinking about, you know, how do I support my family? How do I rebuild my lives right away? So we want to have an eclectic array of options for students. And so when you log onto the platform, you're actually given an option. Do you want a BA? Do you want an AA? Or do you want vocational job training opportunities? And so students are actually able to pick and guide their own path. Nationally, we spend over $35,000 a year to incarcerate someone. Over $80 billion a year spent on just corrections alone, not even talking about courts and the impact on families. So it's an extremely expensive problem. We believe that by realigning and giving DOCs options to be able to help folks to get educated on the inside, it's not only the right and moral thing to do, but it's also the pragmatic thing. It's going to save states a ton of money in the long run. You've had some success, but in some ways it's also still early days. What's at stake for Amelia right now? I think what's at stake for us right now is how do we scale beyond these five states that we've been able to partner with, right? I think that, you know, often we get asked, what is the plan to get to the 2.2 million? There's over 4,000 counting jails across the country with their own unique needs. What we're really trying to do is partner with strategic organizations, thinking about in order for us to scale effectively, focusing purely on software is the way to go. So thinking about how do we work with companies like a Google or Microsoft that not only has great software, but cloud storage, hardware, et cetera. And so we're now in talks to a handful of these companies. So we often kind of hear why the incarcerated, right? These are folks who have committed crimes. These are folks who, you know, may have done terrible things. You know, why should we care? And I kind of meet folks where they're at. I think that my friends who are incarcerated, we had very, very similar experiences, right? On the outside, we went to the same schools. We played in the same AAU teams and played basketball together, but our home lives were drastically different. My parents were college educated. From day one, I was going to college. But my friends were from single parent households. They had siblings and parents who had been incarcerated. Their home lives were so different. And so I think we often overlook the hidden causes of incarceration. And we often blame folks for the worst thing that they've done. But when we look at the data, over 50% of folks who are incarcerated had no income up to eight years prior to their incarceration. And a year prior, 80% had no income. So poverty is a tremendous driver. Certainly, we should hold folks accountable for their actions. We should also understand that there are systemic issues that has caused this mass incarceration problem. And if we want to solve it, we need to be pragmatic, give folks those resources and those critical opportunities that they didn't have that led to their incarceration in the first place. 95% of folks in prison are going to come back to our society. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, what kind of citizen do we want them to be? Do we want them to be folks that have opportunities and are able to rebuild and contribute to our society? Or do we want them to be folks that have no opportunities and are likely to go back into prison? Well, so this has been great. Thank you. Thanks for your passion and your enthusiasm for this and your effort. And thanks for talking with us. Of course. Now, thank you for the opportunity. Hi, everyone. It's Jeff Berman, CEO of Wait What and co-host of the Masters of Scale podcast. Like many of you, my to-do list changes by the minute. Whether I'm working with partners or hashing out legal documents or brainstorming with our team, there is never a shortage of tasks that require attention and constant communication. Like Masters of Scale co-host Reid Hoffman, I know artificial intelligence is a huge part of our future. And Grammarly is an enterprising leader in AI. With Grammarly, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. It's like having a collaborator for my writing, helping me generate better first drafts and tailoring messages to our specific audiences. 
It's not only a superior AI tool, it is a safe AI tool. And as a CEO, security is always top of mind. Grammarly has 14 years of experience and a business model that never sells our data. Security has been a priority since day one and continues to be integral to Grammarly's values today. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. It's hosted by me, Bob Safian, Masters of Scale's editor-at-large. Masters of Scale host is Reed Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Jordan McLeod. Our head of content and production is Lori Hoffman. Our producer is Marie McCoy-Thompson. Scripts by Alex Morris and Tucker Ligurski. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Eduardo Rivera. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nault, and Mike Gallagher. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark Gray, Emily McManus, Adam Heiner, Colin Howarth, Tim Cronin, Kelsey Capitano, Sammy Aputa, Anna Pizzino, Sarah Tartar, Leah Saramedis, Charlie Manessis, Chinemia Zaquena, Aria Finger, and Saida Sapieva. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode. And please subscribe to our email newsletter. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership.